The following Noble Path talk is part of an informal series offered to Sangha members over Zoom during monthly online meetings for those who've been practicing at the Zen Center of New York City, Fire Lotus Temple. Each Sangha member shares their experience of how they came to find the Dharma and how their practice has been developing. We hope you enjoy the diversity of voices and experiences. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everyone. It's nice to see so many people here on a beautiful, sunny summer day. Thank you for coming into a zendo like this. As Union said, my name is Chikyu. My pronouns are he and him. I'm a white, straight, cisgendered male. And although you may not identify with all those identities, I do hope you find this talk beneficial to you in some way. So Hojin Sensei asked me to give this talk. As you can see, I said yes. <laughs> um, for me, Zen practice, a lot of it has been saying yes when I don't really want to say yes. This morning, to be frank with you, I had a lot of waves of fear and trust. And it's okay um, if you can let the waves come and go. But um, maybe you can identify this, but I tend to cling to the fear. A narrative pops up, like what if? What if I open my mouth and nothing comes out? What if I show fear? What if I show vulnerability? You'll hear from this talk a little bit about vulnerability. So off we go. <laughs> um, this talk is about how I found my way to Buddhism. And I'll also talk about my experience and practice. Um, I found this practice late in life. So I'm sorry to say you're going to have to sit through a lot of twists and turns. And as I was writing this down, it kind of thought to me like, um, you know, you, when you watch a movie or read a book and the main character keeps making these wrong turns and you're like, ah, oh, you see it, but they don't see it. It's going to be like that. <laughs> um, although you can break this talk up in between sort of before Buddhism and after Buddhism, in many ways, it's all really one long path. It's interesting because, you know, for me, my life, I think of it compartmentalized, really. Like, there's, you know, I was going to school, I was working here, I was living there. But in a lot of ways, um, you know, there's, there's something underneath all of that. And I hope to get to that here. You know, I always envied people that saw a clear path in front of them and what they wanted to do with their lives. You know, um, maybe like a friend, I have a friend that was, a, that always wanted to be a scientist and now they're in a research lab. For me, um, I never saw a clear path. For me, it was always like, you know, brambles, thickets of brambles and branches. And, um, you know, as I sit here now though, if I look back, a path does reveal itself. You know, there's a lot of reasons for the twists and turns I've taken, but there's an undercurrent that uh, has driven most of my momentum. So what is that? 
Let me start with the evening gatha. Let me respectfully remind you, life and death are of supreme importance. Time swiftly passes by and opportunity is lost. Each of us should strive to awaken. Awaken, take heed. Do not squander your life. I heard that for the first time when I was 40. But if I heard that at five or six, it would have resonated with me on some level. Maybe you too. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time swiftly passes by. Do not squander your life. Those are things I would have related to. But what to do with that information, that impulse? The evening gatha implores us to strive to awaken. This gives us something to strive for, to apply this desire to not squander our lives. But I didn't have this. So most of my life has been a search. How does one not squander their life? The Gatha says life and death are of supreme importance. I'm not sure when I first encountered death, maybe around four or five when my grandfather died. I'm not sure what they told me, but it didn't sit well. (laughs) I had this impression of, of just trying to wrap my head around not existing. Um, I guess you can say I didn't really identify with heaven if they even told me about that. I remember being at a magic show as a kid um, and the magician wanted to pull me up on stage and put me in a box and make me disappear. I wasn't having that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it just felt like where was I going to go? What was going to happen? Um, that's kind of what death felt like. Um, it didn't help that this kid was only probably 15 years old. I didn't have much faith in him. So, um, The Gatha goes on to say, time swiftly passes by. If you look closely at things, even as a young kid, you can really see this, right? Um, Christmases, vacations, you know, they, they come and go. Um, you'd see, you know, your favorite toy on Christmas Day a week later is just kind of sitting on the floor, not really being played with anymore. I had a bit of religion, though. Um, I remember praying at night, not sure about what, but I remember when praying, sort of a warm feeling in my heart. You know, as I reflect back now, um, I remember seeing those pictures of Jesus with the glowing heart. I don't know if I was influenced by that, but, um, but the feeling was real. It's uh, maybe not unlike what I feel sometimes when I'm sitting zazen in my hara or my heart center. I should say I had a few different run-ins with meditation throughout my life, which you'll hear about. Looking back, it keeps sort of, it was being presented to me over and over again, but I was a bit kind of too daft to pick it up. Um, The earliest was actually when I was in second grade. I was sleeping over a friend's house, and his parents were hippies, according to my parents. Um, And so they taught him how to meditate. So, um, you know, as we're falling asleep, 
he he point he said um, I can teach you how to meditate and you know the word resonated with me I don't know why but um, and he said all you got to do is count your breaths so <laughs> yeah, that might sound familiar to some of you right um, uh, anyway so he said count your breaths your mind will quiet down and you'll fall asleep well that worked for Eric but not for me. Um, that was like the first of many I can't meditate. So you might have gathered from hearing all this that I was a bit of a shy, sensitive kid. But I picked up from those around me that these were not great qualities for a boy. So coming into adolescence, I put these qualities away. Religion also went the way of Santa Claus. I learned that humor was a great way to connect with people and in hindsight keep people away from the deeper sides of myself. I developed toughness, or at least tried to project it through anger. But these are sort of only things that you can see in hindsight. Bell Hooks says, there is only one emotion that patriarchy values when expressed by men. That emotion is anger. Anger is the best hiding place for anybody seeking to conceal pain or anguish of spirit. Needless to say, when I, when I heard that, it really clicked for me. But growing up, I would never have identified with being angry. I don't think I really explored my feelings at all back then. I also discovered drugs and alcohol in my early teenage years, which was an on-again, off-again relationship for over 25 years. Drugs and alcohol met a lot of my needs, although it seemed that way. For an introvert, it helped me be more extrovert. It gave me friends, it gave me and my friends something con to connect to and around. And it also helped me fortify an exterior of toughness and numb myself at the same time inside. But there's definitely something more. What does do not squander your life look like to a 13 or 14 year old kid? For me, it certainly wasn't do good. It wasn't certainly. It certainly wasn't do good in school. Um, yeah, there was more about a party. Life should be a party, right? Um, if you only go around once, why waste it in school? So I kept hearing you're only young once, so I was going to make the most of it and drugs and alcohol seemed like a pretty good way to rebel against society and what society was trying to make of me. It's kind of funny because in hindsight, although I was rebelling against society, I was really just falling into another typecast, the rebellious teen. And as a rebellious teen, I got into a lot of trouble, but white judges have a soft spot for white middle-class kids that have intentions of, ten of attending college and making something of themselves. I was just acting out, blowing off a little steam. I thought this Bell Hooks quote sums it up nicely. Every day across this country, boys consume mass media images that send them one message about how to deal with emotions, and that message is act out. Me and my friends grew up watching Animal House and Caddyshack, so my behavior was somewhat predictable. But I did make it to college and tried to expand my horizons. I learned of Eastern religions from the beats, and although Christian religion was dead for me, 
I was open to other religions. I remember reading the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and that left a deep impression on me. It resonated with those earlier thoughts of fears of death. How do I prepare in this life for death? Time swiftly passes by, so as this party is going to end, so too will my life. I encountered meditation again in college. I was invited to a transcendental meditation class. And I don't know if you've ever taken a TM class, but the first two or three classes are free. Um, but then you got to pay. And uh, unfortunately, I didn't have any money at the time. The little money I had was being spent otherwise. Um, so I parted ways with TM. So what does do not squander your life look like at college graduation? I knew it wasn't about getting a corporate job. Money didn't seem to be the answer. Everyone I saw that had money always just seemed to be as broke as me. Helping others seemed like a good thing to do with your life and make your life meaningful. Travel also seemed important. I didn't find what I was looking for in the US, so maybe I'd find it outside. The idea of travel and looking for something outside is something that I pursued off and on for the next 15 years. So I joined the Peace Corps. One of my inner goals at the time when joining the Peace Corps was actually to go to a remote place and actually start, try to start a meditation practice. I lived in the Fiji Islands for a couple of years. And as a former British colony, Fiji had a large South Asian population. So I read the Bhagavad Gita and I found a Hindu Swami to teach me meditation. So every weekend I would travel for a couple of hours to this Swami. And I think he was pretty amused by me. He'd always, when he'd see me, he'd go, ah, the guy who wants to learn meditation. <laughs> and so I'd sit sort of like this at his feet, I think, in hindsight. And um, he'd teach me, and I'd go off and meditate that week, and I'd come back to him the next week. I'd be like, it's not working. Like, my mind is just too racy, too racy. And he'd talk to me and he'd tell me something and he was speaking to me, but it just wasn't, it just wasn't landing. It's sort of like, you know, you can only see to the depth of your vision at a certain time. And at that time, I really couldn't hear or see what he was saying to me. I left the Peace Corps with a couple of friends and we spent the, nine month, the next nine months or so living on bikes and pedaling through Southeast Asia, South Asia and Europe. I was looking for something in these travels. I wanted a sign, the bigger the better. I remember we visited the birthplace of Buddha in southern Nepal. It was the hot, dry season right before the monsoons, so there wasn't really a lot of people around. So I was just walking around the grounds, waiting, hoping to get struck by lightning. Um, instead, I came around the corner of a temple. I saw a monk with a young kid sitting on some steps. To this day, I don't really know what I saw. They looked startled to see me. I felt like something inappropriate was going on. But many years later, in hindsight, 
it's just possible that they were just startled to see some white guy just pop around the corner like that. But whatever it was, I just walked away with a, a realization, one that I didn't really want to have at the time, and that was, you ain't going to find what you're looking for outside of yourself. But I kept traveling, kept running. Months later, I was in Ireland, almost home, but my body was sort of revolting. I had picked up a bunch of parasites in South Asia, and I really couldn't keep going. I met someone who was nice enough to take me into their house. The Irish are actually very nice. Um, most people are very kind, actually, if given the opportunity, but that's a, that's a separate story. I remember sitting on a bed near exhaustion, and for some reason I just started to follow my breath. And in that moment, I touched something. Stillness. Peace. But then my mind jumped in, sort of like when you drop a rock in the center of a quiet lake and the ripples rip out. So I tried to get back to that place in further meditations, but it kind of doesn't work like that. And so the harder I tried, the further away it got, and then I gave it up again. I came back to the States, and after all that traveling and picture taken, I wanted to get into documentary filmmaking. That seemed like a good way not to squander your life. But documentaries don't really pay, so I wound up working on commercials and music videos. For the next five years, five to six years of my life, my life was one of extremes. I would work six to nine months of the year living, on a, living a work hard, party hard New York lifestyle. And then I'd split and go travel and travel to some remote place, waiting to be struck by lightning still. The excesses of the film industry versus the austerity of a mountaintop or rainforest. On 9-11, I was working for an advertising agency in New York, producing high-end fashion shoots when the towers were struck. 9-11 was a inflection point for a lot of people. It was for me. The fuck was I doing in advertising? I hated advertising. I had no idea how I wound up in advertising. So in my mind, my simple mind of good and evil, advertising bad, I need to get back to good, do the good work of the Peace Corps. We all knew the bombs would be falling in Afghanistan. And it didn't seem right that innocent people would pay the price for 9-11. I'd applied for a lot of development jobs in Afghanistan, but was rightly turned down by all of them. But there was an organization, I guess desperate enough for staff for their South Sudan office, that they hired me. So it wasn't Afghanistan, but South Sudan seemed like a good place to do some good work. Needless to say, I wasn't really prepared for operating feeding centers in southern Sudan. I worked 24-7 doing logistics and administration and was pretty much burnt out after three months, but I stuck it out for another nine. My simple notions of good and evil were challenged. It seemed everyone was feeding off a system based on displaced, hungry people. 
the rebels, the government, the NGOs, the donors. I won't get into it just to say that I came away feeling gray. The world was no longer black and white. Fast forward a few years and I was back in New York. And although the work I was doing was rewarding, and you might say I was successful, there was something lacking. Those old feelings of, is this it? All the things I tried, career, money, relationships, sex, drugs, all were empty. I finally made my way to a therapist who heard my story and was convinced that all I needed to do was find a nice woman and settle down. (laughs) She thought I had some minor depression too and would benefit from drugs. This didn't seem right to me, but I wasn't going to argue. I was ready for an easy answer. She sent me to a psychiatrist who she said could give me a prescription, but first he needed to hear my story. I don't exactly remember his name, but it sounded like Martini, so to this day I remember him as Dr. Martini. And he was sort of at a central casting for a psychiatrist. He was a big round man in his 60s with a beard. And as I told my story, he would just suck on a lozenger, not really saying anything, just nodding. At the end of the hour, I looked at him and I said, so you're going to give me a prescription? And he paused and quiet for a while and just slowly said, I think you're having an existential crisis. That was it. (laughs) That was my diagnosis. (laughs) But he didn't offer any cures. So what do you do with that information? So I meandered around for another two years, right? Um, and then uh, it was a New Year's resolution. I could, I remember, I, was, I don't even know how to kind of or even articulate it, but I just said something like, I need to find spirituality. And um, at the time, there was something in the press about transcendental meditation. So I'm like, oh, let me try that. I can at least afford it now, right? So TM was great for me. It was very simple. Here's a mantra. Repeat it in your head. If you find you're not, if you get distracted from the mantra, just come back to the mantra. Do it two times a day for 20 minutes each time a day. I needed that rigidity, that formula. And I remember feeling the benefits of it right away, actually. Um, I developed more clarity of mind, more centered thinking, more stability. I remember one day looking at my to-do list at work and just having a different relationship with it. It was no longer, my mind was no longer the ping pong ball, you know, that it used to be. And soon after starting TM, I met the woman that would become my wife. And I don't think I would have been open to that relationship had I not had some type of practice. TM was great, but it really wasn't answering any of those deeper questions about life and death. So one day I was walking down State Street (laughs) and came upon the temple. Um, I'd actually come upon it many many times before, and literally every time I came upon it, I'd stop and kind of just stare at it. 
Um, but um, I guess you'd say waking up at 9.30 on a Sunday morning wasn't really part of my lifestyle for a long time. So this time it was different. I came from the, for the Sunday program, like many of you today, and I learned beginning instruction, and I heard people talking about life and death. There was no lightning, but something clicked. I went home and started doing Zazen instead of TM from that point on. So while it took me time to find this practice, and it certainly was an exhausting journey, there are some benefits to finding it at 40 years old. For one, you've tried everything else. I was ready to throw myself into it. I wish I can end this talk and say, he lived happily ever after, but it don't quite work like that. <laughs> I came into this practice emotionally numb and suffering. And Zazen, this practice, was like taking a drink of cold water after dying of thirst. It feels like the past 12 years of practice has been like a block of ice slowly melting, getting in touch with my emotions and my body. But it didn't start out this way. My life was pretty complicated at the time. I was newly married and had a wonderful stepdaughter. I went from being a bachelor to married with a kid overnight. I remember hearing the teachers talk about how you can't go around your pain. The path is to go into the pain. Yeah, yeah, I get that. I promise to go into, into the pain after I become enlightened. <laughs> It seemed so much easier that way. I felt like I'd have so much more tools at my disposal. There was a part of my zazen, probably a large part of my zazen, that was seeking out the more blissful feelings. These were good sits, as opposed to bad sits, when my mind was all over the place. I also used my practice as a way to avoid some of the relational challenges that I was having. Can't you people just leave me alone so I can meditate? <laughs> you know there's something wrong when you're rushing and stressed to make it to the temple before they close the doors at 6.30. In time, I also saw that I was pushing thoughts and emotions away. The directions sound easy. See the thought and let it go. But if we're not careful, it can be see the thought, push it away, and look for something else. They call this spiritual bypassing. And yeah, it should be avoided. But you know, we got to give ourselves some love and understanding when peeling back this onion of ourselves and our life. It's a practice. And what you can't deal with today, maybe you can deal with tomorrow. I hear my teacher's voice, Hogan Sensei, say, just love yourself. What does that mean? Thich Nhat Hanh says, to take good care of ourselves, we must go back and take care of the wounded child inside of us. You have to practice going back to our wounded child every day. You have to embrace him or her tenderly like a big brother or sister. 
So this is meant for me getting to know that little shy, sensitive kid from the 70s. It's okay when his fears arise and his anxieties arise, like before giving a talk in front of your sangha. Just show him a little love. <laughs> 